You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Life as a pastor certainly comes with its share of uncertainties. Often people expect pastors to know what God is up to. After all, we're the ones who are usually standing before the people of God on a week-in, week-out basis, calling people to see and know God and get in on what He's doing. It's often forgotten that we're doing that as a people, as a person. I'm doing that every week as a person trying to do the same thing. I haven't gotten it to figure it out. Truth is, I don't always know what God is up to. Sometimes I don't have a clue. And of course, I mean, we have some general ideas like pursuing those who, know, who do not know God. He's up to that. He's up to stirring convictions in the ones who do know Him. We know that. We know that there are many times in our lives where it feels like we're just playing a guessing game as to what God is doing. For instance, there have been times in my life where God seems to providentially be leading me one way just for me to follow and realize that he wants to take a left turn, a right turn, and even sometimes a U-turn, and then it's hard to know if I should have gone that way in the first place. There are times in my life where I have spent many, many hours, literally hours in prayer, so hours in silence, hours in Scripture, hours seeking counsel about what to do, and I feel a sense of peace, and I move forward just to find that that way forward seems just as uncertain as where I started. The worst of all is when there are times when people want to ask me why God does or does not serve certain things. That I have no idea about. I mean, I could offer theological sort of platitudes, right? The kind of stuff you can buy on a bumper sticker or a magnet at Lifeway or put on your coffee mug. But you can get that there, so why do you need it for me? And I could remind us of truths with that, like Romans 8, 28, that in all things, not above, not below, not around, in all things, God works together for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose, that God, not everything happens for a purpose. God gives purpose to everything that happens. It's a far different proposition, and frankly, a far more powerful God, in my view, blaming God for all the ills of the world and as I think sometimes our natural response for trying to figure out what God is really up to and why he's doing what he's doing or why he didn't heal this person but healed this person. And the fact of the matter is I don't always know. I could, I could philosophically attempt to lead us down a path of John eleven twenty five and remind us that our healing is only an, a signpost to the ultimate healing that is to come, that death will take all, but resurrection has been assured through Christ. I could do that. And I think all of these are true. All of these statements are rooted in Scripture, but they're propositional truths that appeal primarily to the intellect and do very little for the soul sometimes. See, the psalmist knew this all too well. How many psalms in the psalm book? Anybody know? How many psalms do we have in the Hebrew Scriptures? 150 psalms. Does anybody know how many of those psalms are psalms of lament and complaint? Over a third. Over a third of the psalms that have often brought us comfort are psalms of lament and complaint, yet Christians don't know how to lament, and we don't know how to complain to God. We know how to complain to each other about what things are going on in church, but we don't know how to really complain and lament to the God of heaven and earth to follow the suit of the psalms. And intellectual platitudes don't always get us there. 
Because the intellectual propositional truths that we buy at our Lifeway bookstores and that people often give us in the spur of the moment in an effort to comfort us appeal to the intellect and not always to the soul. God is in control. I'm not really sure we reckon with what that implies and means to the person who hears it and in his suffering. And we put God back on first base again, having to round the bases when really all we needed to do was be present and feel the weight of suffering and join people in their lament with our own lamentation. And that's what we find today. See, the teacher that the Lord has prescribed for us today was a man whose name was Jeremiah, and he was a prophet and a poet. But Jeremiah was not an easy sell when it came to propositional truths that appealed primarily to the intellect. He was a passionate man, a poet, who was in touch with the human heart and sought to understand the heart of God. He's often called the weeping prophet. Jeremiah was a patriot, though his countrymen did not think so. Because, see, Jeremiah, as a patriot who deeply loved his country, wanted his countrymen and women to see they were putting too much pressure on their country with their nationalistic tendencies of idolatry and injustice. It's the reason he loved his country, but he wasn't willing to explain away the historical narrative of his country's existence as one given to sin and injustice. And so they did what we've always done to prophets, and tried to kill him. And when they did, he would take that angst to God and he would have the audacity to look at the God of heaven and earth and even call God a liar. God, you lied to me. You said that you had plans for me in my mother's womb. And here I am in a dungeon and in a pit with my own people that I love and am giving my life away, trying to call them back to you, wanting to kill me and calling me things that I am not. Some things never change, I suppose. He was a strong man with strong opinions as to what God should be doing and wasn't afraid to voice it both with God and God's people. Even when he was in the wrong, he called God a liar, y'all. And on top of all these descriptions, there is one thing that carries the most weight. He did know God. So our teacher, Jeremiah, will teach us today the courage of lament. But before we do, we have to step into the pages of the story and take a visit to the potter's workshop. Jeremiah 18 is our text. Okay, so here's the backstory. So God has decreed through Jeremiah that judgment's going to fall upon God's people of Judah. Say Judah. Come on now, say Judah. I might have to warm you up for next week. <laughs> Through Jeremiah, God has warned his people time and time again, demanding that they repent, or another way, to turn away from their allegiance to their own nationalism and turn to their allegiance to God as Lord of all. To turn away from allegiance to the false idols and false gods of injustice that perpetuated systems of injustice and turn to allegiance to God. Jeremiah has declared that God's intentions is to form, uh, is to form a, a, a possibility of repentance 
but they must turn away from their idolatry and injustice and embrace his love and holiness and obey him as commanded in their Torah, in their law, in their scriptures, and also recognize that he is the Lord of all nations, all nations, including Judah. And so God's going to make his intentions clear both to and through his prophet. And the moral condition of, of Judah is, as Jeremiah 5.31 says, a place where prophets were prophesying falsely and the priests were ruling on their own authority. And he says it has to come. See, what was happening is, see, what was happening is Judah was consulting all their experts. You know, all their experts, their prophets and their priests. But the prophets and the priests had it wrong. Because they weren't really tending to God as king of all nations. They were tending to themselves and to their own success. And so Jeremiah was coming in, and in Jeremiah 5.31, it literally says, it is time for the, false, for the prophets who are prophesying falsely and the priests, let me quote it, who are ruling on their own authority to bring it to an end. And so Jeremiah stands on the edge. He stands on the edge of Judah, and he stands on the edge of an international crisis. Sometimes we forget that the scriptures are written in real places and real times about real people and real countries and real nations in a real part of the world. He stands on the edge of an international crisis where the experts aren't getting it right. It's in the text. And God is crying out to his people through his prophet to turn away from thinking that they can do life on their own terms and to repent and give their allegiance back to God as king. And even through Jeremiah, who prophesies about the coming Messiah, the King of kings, the Lord of lords that we know as Jesus the Christ, he prophesies that this old world order with its reign of sin and death, I'm using Paul's language there, this old world order with its violence and its injustice and its systems of anxiety. Jeremiah prophesies in his prophecy that there's a Messiah that's going to come and he's going to flip the old world order on its head and bring in a new world order that we now know on this side of the cross is the kingdom of God. He's prophesying about this Messiah that's going to be raised up through this covenant that God made with Abraham and is going to come through Israel and make all that has been wrong in the world right again. So Jeremiah even prophesies about a future hope to try and say, listen, get on board. Get on board with what's coming. Let this go. This right here that you're holding on to, it ain't going to last. Every kingdom, every nation, including this one, will be a footnote in the pages of history. And the kingdom of God will stand. Which one are you living for? That's what Jeremiah is asking. And so knowing that he's had a hard ministry, and God gives him a vision, an oracle, he says, I want you to go visit a potter's workshop. As Jeremiah pleads, pleads, God says, I want to expand your imagination. So here's what I'd like to do for you and me this morning. I want to expand our imaginations. I want us to see the scriptures. Envision the workshop. Envision the potter. Envision the clay. Jeremiah 18, verse 1. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Go down at once to the potter's house. There I will reveal my words to you. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working away at the wheel. 
But the jar that he was making from the clay became flawed in the potter's hand. So he made it into another jar, as it seemed right for him to do. In obedience to God's word, Jeremiah visits the potter's workshop in order to see what God would have him learn and do. And so here God gives him this vision. Jeremiah witnesses the potter place the clay upon a wheel, and as the wheel turns, he witnesses the potter with delicate hands shape the clay into a pot. And even though the potter's hands that are gentle yet firm are giving it shape, somehow the pot becomes misshapen. And it lacks the beauty and the purpose the potter had faithfully intended. And so the potter, faithful with his intent, faithful with what the clay could become, flattens the clay and begins again to reshape it. He doesn't tear parts off and throw it aside. He doesn't take the the clay that he had to flatten and throw it out and start over. That's not how he works. The potter loves it too much. And so he takes water and he he douses it some more and he makes it more shiny. He shapes it and he does so gently. He doesn't do so frantically. The potter's not freaking out. The potter is just there, patiently, gently, shaping the clay faithful to his intent, knowing exactly in his mind's eye how beautiful and purposeful the pot can be. He takes great pride in the works of his hands, the potter. Today, you and I are invited to see the potter slowly, lovingly, and firmly shaping the wet clay into a pot ready to be fired and used as a beautiful vessel. This wet clay that is malleable, that is capable of being formed into any number of shapes for a variety of purposes, but also remembering that the clay is able to lose its shape and become unsuitable for its intended purpose. See, the clay has great purpose and intention and is well suited for the desire of the Creator. And without the design and intention and purpose of the creator, of the potter, without the faithful touch of the potter, the clay will remain shapeless and useless in order for the clay to become a beautiful masterpiece. The clay must submit to the hands of the potter and allow itself to be reshaped. See, what about you and me? Do we see ourselves for what we really are? Or have we lived too long and know how this world works, right? Like we've we've gone to church all our life. We could win a Bible bowl or two even. We've lived in this country and seen all the bads and the ups and downs, so we know, we know. Or are we, do we, are we really willing to see us for how we all really are, and that is misshapen clay? Or do we already think we've just arrived? Because we're old enough, or live long enough, or have more f- enough degrees, 
Are we capable of seeing us for how we really are as misshapen clay in the hands of a loving and faithful potter? Do we, despite all we see around us, see God for who he really is, the loving potter with beauty and purpose in mind, shaping and reshaping us in accordance to his desire for his kingdom, not for my own desire, not for my big house and car and right degrees and right spouses and right number of kids and happy-go-lucky life, but, but in light of his kingdom purposes, am I willing to submit to that or am I going to dig in? If we truly saw the potter for who he was, would we become more malleable and let go of our stubbornness? Will we trust not only just what he says we can become, but submit to the gentle yet firm and sometimes even painful reshaping that has to take place knowing that God refuses to play games with our life and that even in the midst of the reshaping that is painful, we're still in the hands of the loving and faithful potter who isn't frantic, who isn't freaking, but who understands our frailty and our beauty and our purpose? Will we trust that when the pain comes, we don't have to bury our heads in the sand. When we see the suffering all around, we don't have to take on Christian escapism and hope that we can go to church just to hear some pep songs and some sort of spiritual pep rally so we can feel good about ourselves and forget the fact that the world is in need of remembering there are faithful hands of a loving potter who wants to shape and reshape. And he has begun with us as his people. He knows every detail of our lives. Could we then hold on to the truth that he takes great pride in the work of his hands and he would not let us end up misshapen and useless? See, he not only wanted Jeremiah and Judah to know and see this, he wants us to know and see it too. So Jeremiah 5 and 6, it says, The word of the Lord came to me, House of Israel, can I not treat you as this potter treats his clay? This is the Lord's declaration. Notice it says it's the Lord's declaration, but it's in the form of a question, which reminds us that it's a rhetorical question. God is not asking for permission. He's calling out to his past of covenant fidelity, of his past faithfulness. He's saying, haven't you, like, haven't I proven myself to you? that I can, as the sovereign Lord and God of heaven and earth, shape you into what I know you can become? Or are you just so satisfied or so bent on thinking you've got the right design that somehow I don't have better intentions for you? See, God delivers this divine oracle as promised and begins with this rhetorical question, and it is almost as if he's appealing to who he's revealed himself to be in the course of Israel's history, which would really be one of the pinnacle moments in Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7, where it was revealed to the people of God this, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, 
and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and the fourth generation. It's like in this Exodus declaration, Judah has witnessed God as compassionate, gracious, and slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. But now, and here's the thing, if they don't turn away, if they don't turn away from their rebellion, idolatry, injustice, and frail attempts to live life on their own terms, God will not hold from them his provision and protection and they will get what they have wanted which is a life of curse see we forget that in the beginning God said if you trust me and follow me you'll get blessing but if you don't you'll get cursing and it's not because God is the one always cursing and God cursing them sin and the reign of sin and death and it's injustice and it's idolatry it creates a society that's going out of control God doesn't have to do anything when we rebel we do it to ourselves That's the consequence of a life lived without the lordship of Jesus. And a life lived without the lordship of the sovereign God who is compassionate. And so we say, look, yeah, if if you don't stop, this is going to visit the fathers and the fathers and the fathers and the fathers and the fathers. The death-dealing consequence of sins. God is not indifferent to the reign of sin and death and how it breaks us. But he's also not indifferent to our complicity and participation with it. So God pleads to Jeremiah and he says, Just like clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, house of Israel. At one moment I might announce concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will uproot, tear down, and destroy it. However, if that nation I've made an announcement about turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the disaster I had planned to do to it. At another time, I announce that I will build and plant a nation or a kingdom. However, if it does what is evil in my sight by not listening to my voice, I will relent concerning the good I had said I will do. That's how it happens. God relents concerning the good. He doesn't cause the bad. He relents concerning the good. He relents concerning the good. He holds back. And we get what we want. So now I say to the men of Judah and to the residents of Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says, I'm about to bring harm then. I'm going to relent from the good. Turn from your evil way and correct your ways and your deeds. Though God is the potter and reserves to write to do as He desires, He's not aloof stubborn or unwilling to see and hear the hearts of those He loves and is made with His own two hands. God's not indifferent. I believe that's why He's given us this visit to the potter's workshop. I believe that's why He's given us this visit to image, to imagine the potter and the clay, the potter's glorious desires for the vessel and the beauty and purpose He knew it could display. The potter's anything but indifferent. And Judah forgot not only who God was, but who they were as well. God was calling Judah to repentance and an accurate view of Himself. And in doing so, God is calling Judah to an accurate view of themselves and the circumstances that surround them. Judah's view of God and themselves and their surrounding circumstances should be rooted not in their nationalism and their commitment to their nation as Judah, but in God's character and covenant fidelity and their commitment to that covenant fidelity themselves and their commitment to who He is and what He's done. And see, what we do when we read the prophets is we might too easily make Judah America. 
and interpret this as some sort of nationalistic message. You'll hear it from the talking heads in religion too. But that's not how you read the text. Judah are the people of God. Who's the people of God today? Who? The church. This is a text to be interpreted for the church as the church living where we are. This is a word to the church, not to a country. This is a word to the nation of God, as Peter called it, the kingdom of God, who happens to live in 2017 United States of America, who happens to stand on the precipice of crisis all around us and be immersed in it. See, the message for Judah and the message from Jeremiah is the same for us. Throughout the book of Jeremiah, and especially in the potter's workshop, we see that confidence in the potter comes in knowing him and trusting that his intentions to develop a masterpiece of beauty is true. As God the potter is shaping and reshaping us, the clay, because after all, we were formed from the dirt. He will often do it in ways that may not be understood and even by the vessels themselves. And if we forget this visit to the potter's workshop, we could find ourselves drowning. Drowning beneath the uncertainty and doubt that is ultimately there because of the fears of anxiety and violence and death. Jeremiah needs this trip to the potter's workshop. He needs it because God's people refuse to repent ultimately. Soon destruction will come. Soon Jeremiah will walk over the rubble and breathe in the dust of a nation that is burning. He will need to remember the potter's workshop because he'll be brought to his knees and lament. The weight of disappointment, uncertainty, suffering, and death will be almost too much for him to bear. And if Jeremiah is going to somehow stand underneath the weight of it all, he must have the courage to lament. With raw emotion and unrelenting honesty, but do so in the hope that in the midst of it all, the potter is still in his workshop. See, too often times, Christians, we want to come to church and just get away from it all. And look, man, I don't blame you at all. Like, everything I've tried to watch this week was interrupted by something reminding me of something that's going down. And, and if it wasn't, dude, if it wasn't the tragedy in Las Vegas, it was the governors running for each other telling me my babies were going to die if I voted for each one of them. It's all this death-dealing narrative of our society. And it would be easy for me as a pastor to want to stand up here and give us a spiritual pep rally, but the tragedy is if I love you at all and if the elders love you at all, we will tell you the truth and embrace all that's happening in the world because we know you got to live in it in about two hours. And we need to be able to stand up underneath it because the world is suffering. And we're the people who are supposed to be the people of hope. And we can't be a people of hope if we don't know how to lament then all we'll do is just store up all the anger and all the sadness and all the lamenting and all the suffering and we'll be formed by the liturgies of, of CNN and CNBC and Fox News and MSNBC and every other channel that's out there and we'll be formed by all the talking heads and all the politics and all the ideologies and it will do more for us than the potter's hands himself. 
And the potter's trying to form us, but we're too busy getting everybody's hands all over us. Whereas we're supposed to be the hands and feet of Christ to go and hug and hold the hurting. But we're too busy getting angry too. And if we're going to stand underneath the weight of it all, we need to go visit the potter's workshop. And we need to learn how to lament. See, because as Jeremiah walks the rubble of a city that is burning and breathes in the dust of death, he writes Lamentations. And he says in Lamentations 3, verse 19, Remember my affliction and my homelessness. The wormwood and the poison, I continually remember them and have become depressed. Say depressed. Yet I call this to mind. I call this to mind. I remember, I remember the time in the workshop. And therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's faithful love. Say faithful love. We do not perish. For his mercies never end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will put my hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for deliverance from the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke while he is still young. Let him sit alone and be silent for God has disciplined him. Let him put his mouth in the dust and perhaps there is still hope. Let him offer his cheek to the one who would strike him. Let him be filled with shame. In other words, oh my God, don't let him respond with retribution and vengeance. Oh man, if we could just get that right. Verse 31, for the Lord will not reject us forever, even if he calls us suffering. I love Jeremiah's whole, like, I'm not really sure what God is up to. Even if he's the one causing suffering, he will show compassion according to his abundant faithful love. For I know, for he does not enjoy bringing affliction or suffering on mankind. And then he pivots, he pivots. He doesn't let this be God's deal. He pivots. Listen to what he says. He says, crushing all the prisoners of the land beneath one's feet, denying justice to a man in the presence of the Most High, or suppressing a person's lawsuit, the Lord does not approve of these things. In other words, he calls right back to the idolatry and injustice. The entire narrative is laced with meaning for us today, and we must not forget our trip to the potter's house because our own nation burns with anger, fear, anxiety, and violence. Our entire country. And if we forget that the potter is still in his workshop, we as the people of God to whom the text is written will easily drown beneath the uncertainty and doubt and be formed more by the systems of of, of anxiety and violence than the peace and the purpose of the potter. Even this week, we find ourselves stepping over the rubble and breathing in the dust of a nation burning. We feel and see, we see the flames of anger, fear, and anxiety, and violence in Las Vegas where a man opens fire from a 30-second floor, killing 58 people at a country music festival, injuring over 500. And we wonder, is it safe to go out? Is it safe to even go to a concert? And we find ourselves drowning in that and forgetting that the potter's still in the workshop. 
But we see the flames. We see the flames of anger and fear and anxiety and violence in Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut in December 4th of 2012 where 20 children between 6 and 7 are killed with 6 adult staff. We see it in the fires of Washington, D.C. on September 16th of 2013 where 12 people were shot and killed inside the Washington Navy Yard. We see it in Waco, Texas in May 17th of 2015 when a rival motorcycle gang goes to a restaurant where people are just trying to eat and kills, kills 9 people. We see it in Charleston, South Carolina on June 17th of 2015 when in an act of terror, a man walks into an historic black church in Charleston and kills nine people who were just trying to sing Amazing Grace. We see it in Roseburg, Oregon on October 1st of 2015 when a shooter walks onto the campus of the community college in Southeast Oregon and opens fire and kills nine, wounding seven others. We see the fires of anger and fear and violence in San Bernardino, California, when a man and woman walk into a holiday party, both armed, and kills 14 people and wounds 17 others. We see it in Orlando, Florida, on June 12, 2016, when in an act of terror and hatred, 49 people are killed and 53 are injured in a popular gay nightclub in Orlando. And we are formed by those flames more than the flames of the potter. But that's not it. See, we're being burned by our historical revisionism too. We're being burned by our unwillingness to admit where we've always been wrong. Our complicity to the injustices that began in the very beginning and translated out. See, we're being burned by the flames of, of amnesia. We've forgotten about the 150 African Americans that were gunned down by whites during the Koufax Massacre of 1873. We've forgotten about the Wounded Knee Massacre in 1890 where as many as 300 Native Americans were shot and killed in order to promote a political agenda. We've forgotten about the racially motivated violence where hundreds, literally incalculable hundreds of African Americans were killed in East St. Louis in 1917 and then in Tulsa in 1921. We act like this is new. And the church rarely says a word. Because we're just angry too and we buy into the whole ideology and are unwilling to admit what's wrong because we're too committed to things beyond the kingdom of God to do so. Then we're being burned right here by sickness and death. Cancer ravaging the bodies of those we love, like Randy Otis's mother out of nowhere, or like Dell Erickson. Strokes and heart attacks attacking our family's family, which is our family. Aching bodies and broken limbs, lost jobs, floods in Houston and Puerto Rico and Florida. Why do I bring all this up? I bring it up because it happens. And it's going to keep happening. And we as the people of God have to learn how to lament what happens so we can join people in their suffering and their hurt and not create more suffering and hurt by being informed by all the other false narratives out there that the talking heads are giving us. And instead be formed by the prophets of the scriptures, by the life and the purposes and person of Jesus Christ himself who calls us to an entirely different way of life who calls us to an entirely different ethic. See, because it's in our lament that we are unshaped. 
church. It's in our lament that we are malleable. It's in our lament that we remember we have a reason to sing. It's in our lament that we can reason with hope, a world that seems hopeless. It's in our lament that we are reshaped by the potter to demonstrate tangible acts of redemption, compassion, love, and restorative justice as a protest to the violence, anxiety, fear, anger, and suffering, and bear witness as citizens of the kingdom of God that the potter is still in the workshop and his people are evidence of it. Because of the Lord's faithful love, we do not perish, for his mercies never end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So I say, the Lord is my portion, therefore I put my hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for deliverance from the Lord. And we join the suffering in the quiet, knowing that tomorrow morning God's mercies are new. And every week we gather, we take the table. The bread and the wine, the body and the blood of Jesus, to remember that hope was not something God continued to talk about through prophets. Hope was something that God eventually embodied. So as this song is going to be sung, a song that many of us may not know, a song of lament, we will come to the table in hope because we may look for a reason to sing, but in our lament, we remember that the potter is still in his workshop. We are formed again to remember we have a reason to sing, and his name is Jesus.